And I'll begin reading in verse 54, Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. You may have a seat. While we're getting positioned on the stage, you can go ahead and, yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Go ahead and grab a copy of the scriptures if you didn't have time to open them and turn to Acts 6 and 7. Acts chapter 6 and 7. We're going to kick off a new series this morning entitled Missionary Stories looking at the center section of Luke's recounting of the spread of the church in the book of Acts. And before we begin to turn our attention there, let me uh, say a word of thanks to those of you who have shown love to our family as we've gone from being a crew of six to seven. Baby Fuller is here. I think we're 12 days in to this adventure with five kiddos, and he and mom are doing really well. We are grateful for your prayers and love. He's actually up front somewhere hidden uh, under, yeah, hidden up here. So uh, we are delighted to have another little boy in our family, and uh, he and Sarah are doing exceptionally well. So we thank you for your support. As well, we want to welcome Evan Bradford back with us this morning. Those of you that have been a part, yeah, I think that's worthy of clap have been a part of our church for some time, know that Evan has uh, undergone some medical treatment here over the last year, has been unable to worship with us. We reserve the entire balcony for Evan, uh, and so he's hanging out with us this morning, and uh, we've prayed for you, buddy, and really glad uh, that you are with us this morning. Uh, with those uh, introductory remarks out of the way, let me uh, call the ushers down for the collection of the giving to the church at Cherrydale this morning. And uh, as they come, let me remind you that this is the uh, last Sunday for the collection of our One Mission offering for world missions as a church. Uh, you can give in the plates as they're passed using the envelopes that have send at the top uh, that give us an opportunity to invest in missions. As well, there are boxes on the front, stage left and right this morning, anything that's given in those boxes will go to our World Missions offering. Or you can give online. There's an easy drop-down tag that you can find for missions, giving uh, online. Or lastly, you can come tonight to the family meeting and you could give there. As of this morning, we are $41,000 to our goal of $60,000. So praise God, we're over two-thirds of the way to our goal, and we're trusting God to hit that mark and perhaps even eclipse it in our giving today. By way of announcements, let me um, turn your attention to uh, some, as I mentioned in the introduction, 
Summer gives us an opportunity to do things a bit differently. And one of the things we're going to do this summer is uh, have some unique events for the men and women of the church to gather uh, as women and, and as dudes. The ladies are going to kick off a summer Bible study this Wednesday night here at the church uh, starting at 7 o'clock. They're going to be working through Jen Wilkins' study of 1 Peter. And this has a dual purpose for us. One, it's an opportunity to study the scriptures. And two, it's an opportunity for ladies to connect with other ladies in the church. One of the things we know is that simply coming to the gathering on Sunday is not enough to form community. And even if you're in a small group, that means you probably know a handful of other ladies in the church. This provides a unique opportunity for you to interact with a cross-section of ladies in the church. If you're going to be a part of the women's study, you can pick up that Jen Wilkin First Peter study on your own and come prepared on Wednesday, or frankly, just show up. And the ladies will orient you to what's going to come for the rest of the summer, and we'll be happy to connect you. Guys, uh, Father's Day is a couple of weeks away, and the Saturday before Father's Day, I believe that's June 15th, date may be a bit wrong there, but June 15th, Saturday before Father's Day, we're going to go to the lake together and play for the day. Now, there'll be some study. Ladies, don't, don't moan at this, all right? I know y'all are cooler doing the women's Bible study, uh, but guys, we're going to go uh, to Steve Whaley's uh, lake place, and uh, Andrew is going to give us the rundown, and uh, we're going to play and ski and fish and just have a bang-up time. That's going to start on that Saturday. We're going to meet at the church at 8 o'clock and be back together at 5, so it's a full day. If you can't come for the full day, come for half the day. We'll get you oriented. The best way to kind of flag, hey, I'd like to come, I'd like to bring my son, be awesome, is on our website. You can find the information Sign up there, and somebody will follow up with you to tell you where you need to go, what you need to bring. It's going to be a great time for us to be together. So let's pray uh, for all of that good stuff that's happening in the life of our church, and then we'll jump into this morning's sermon. Our Father, we do bow giving you thanks for a good church. Um, we, we recognize that uh, the propensity of our hearts is, is just to always kind of think about uh, frustrations or challenges uh, in our lives, even frustrations and challenges with people around us, but we are so richly blessed uh, to be here this morning, so blessed to gather in unity, so blessed to have a copy of the Bible that we can read in a language that we can understand, uh, so blessed to have financial resources that we can invest in your work around the world, uh, so blessed to have uh, people who invest time in planning events that allow us to uh, connect with other believers, form deep relationships that can spur us on to really good things in our lives. And we pray that you would bring profit out of all of that. We recognize that the way we evaluate profit isn't the way you evaluate it, and so we're asking that you would take all this stuff, all, all the things that happen in the life of the church, and that you would bring about eternal lasting fruit. That you would do something in us that conforms us more fully to the image of Christ. And that expands our reach as we seek to declare and demonstrate the gospel everywhere we go. Father, would these things that we invest in this summer have that good effect? And would you use the resources that this church has given to fuel the work of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ? 
both here in Greenville and around the world. We ask that so that Jesus is known and worshiped. Amen. What is your missionary story? That's our simple question for the entirety of the summer. What is your missionary story? The Christian life, if we want to kind of boil it down to its essence, could be divided into two chapters of the grand story that we're all writing with our lives. One being our grace story, how God and his kindness intersected our reckless pursuit of sin and waywardness and showed us the reality of Jesus, who he was, convicted us of our sin, and brought us to faith and repentance. That's chapter one, our grace story. Chapter two is our missionary story. And really, these are meant to flow one into the next. All of us, as we've seen in the Scattered Church series, who have a grace story are meant to have a missionary story as well. This summer, we're going to consider the essential elements of writing a worthy missionary story with our lives. Now, worthy may seem like a strange word to choose there. I'm picking up the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 when he tells us, after considering the majesty of Christ and his work to save sinners, when he exhorts us in Ephesians 4, 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now, what we know about the latter part of that letter is that that's primarily describing holy living. We're to live as distinct people, holy, conformed to Christ, But we know that one specific aspect of that holy living to which we're called is that we would be his ambassadors, declaring and demonstrating the gospel with the lives that he has entrusted to us. So, Christian, this morning I ask you, what is your current missionary story? Now, we have to have that question asked of us because most of us are not all that prone to evaluate our lives on a regular basis, particularly aspects of our lives that we may feel a bit insecure about. We certainly work in our lives. We pay our bills, we go to our jobs, we care for our children, we do lawn care and maintenance and trim the bushes. But most of us rarely work on our lives. Zoom out and consider, what am I doing to write the story that God has intended for me to write? It requires skill and intentionality to step back and consider, what is the story of my life? And am I pleased with the trajectory it is taking? Tomorrow morning, I'll get up and drive to Statesville, North Carolina, to officiate the memorial service for my grandmother, who passed away three weeks ago. And as I've thought and prepared and as others have shared with me stories of her life, it's, it's clear that at, at any passing, certain stories, certain themes emerge from someone's life. Key changes, major decision, points of sorrow and joy, these all come together to tell us a bit about who someone is. And for each of us, we're going to have certain chapters that are told about us at our passing that that we really can't get around. Certain key relationships will be known and defined by who we're connected with or the vocations that we've chosen, the places that we're called to reside. 
But if we consider for a moment, most of us on our best days want there to be more said about us than merely that we were married to such and such person, had such and such children, worked such and such a job, and lived in such and such a place. We would like a legacy of investment that we've made in others and in the world. And for those who live well, this life well lived is going to be people we've invested in, those we've served, strength that we've lended to others in times of turmoil, truth that we've shared when it was most needed, and perhaps even people who have come to faith in Jesus by virtue of the intentionality with which we have lived our lives. But friends, we all know we're never going to drift towards such a legacy. There is simply too much peril in our world and too much vying for our attention for that story to write itself. It will only be those in this room to whom the Spirit gives great grace that will be able to step outside the mundane trajectory that life presses on us to force a certain missionary story that's worthy of emulating. That's why we're going to consider the book of Acts, the center section of this book, serves as a guide for us, at least in one fashion, of missionary stories worthy of us patterning ourselves after. We know that the book of Acts serves as a, really a connection to the book of Luke, same author, writing this two-part work, the story of the first church, the spread of that church, through the lives of some of the greatest missionaries that have ever lived. In a way, this center section of the book of Acts parallels the Old Testament greats that we considered in our Faith and Frailty series, and that's why we've chosen it as our summer study. Greats like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we studied in the winter, now the likes of Stephen, Paul, Philip, Barnabas, Lydia, and others that are a vital outworking of God's promises in his day. They are the means by which the gospel gets to us, and they're worthy of our patterning ourselves after. Picking up in Acts chapter 6, we've got to get a bit of a running start to what's happened in five chapters leading up to this point. These early followers that have just witnessed the Christ buried, dead, buried, resurrected, are now told to wait for the coming of the Spirit. They get to this commission from Jesus in Acts 1.8 that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, this promise is fulfilled in Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit being poured out on the people of that day. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, Peter's great sermon, where he stands and commends this Christ to the listening audience who are awestruck at the wonders and signs that God is doing. Chapter 2 ending with many coming to faith in Christ in this famous Acts 2, 42 through 47 picture of the early church. What was the nature of their gathering together as God began to add many in their midst? And then from Acts chapter 3 forward, we really have two, or three big themes emerge. We have the demonstration of God's miraculous power through signs and wonders and healing. We have the proclamation of the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is. And we have persecution and suffering. And these threads are going to weave throughout Acts 3, 4, and 5, getting us to Acts chapter 
6 that begins with the choice of seven to serve the church as deacons, or at least as a precursor to the later church office of deacon. And among those, a man named Stephen serves as our main character for our study this morning. We'll pick up the story in Acts 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition, opposition arose, however, from some of the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Syrians and Alexandrians and some from Sicily and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, they seized him, and they took him to the Sanhedrin. And they also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now I'm attempting to do more than any one sermon will be able to do this morning in considering all of Acts chapter 6 and 7. Much could be said about these chapters. I want to work this morning to make the main thing the main thing of the sermon so that we don't miss the main thing among a host of other good things. So what I've attempted to do this morning is boil the main point down to one central truth. Then I'm going to make three points of implication of that one truth, and then four points of application for us. So one truth, three reasons I think this truth matters, and four things I want you to do with the truth that we're going to consider this morning. We see the context really simple. Stephen faces opposition for his work, and like others who've gone before, they find some reason to lie about him, saying that he's undermining undermining the words of Moses and God. And therefore, he's taken before this governing body to give a defense. So we transition into chapter 7. The high priest asks, are these, <clears throat> are these things true? To which, Peter, uh, to which Stephen replies in verse 2, Brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, when he settled in Haran, he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Now it is so easy to read over verse 2, but here in this first reply, I believe we see what is the foundation to writing your own missionary story. What Stephen does is interesting, to say the least. He's asked to give a defense, and a defense that, since we know the end of the story, is going to ultimately end in his death. But he doesn't start with himself. He doesn't begin with his life, nor does he begin with the lives of his contemporaries, nor does he begin with the events of that present day. Instead, he anchors their present experience in the grand story that God has been writing from the foundation of the world. He sees himself, and all of chapter 7, as we'll see, 
caught up in the central story, the singular central story, that defines all of human history. And here is where I believe any intelligent, proactive, intentional missionary story for your life begins. Your missionary story starts by seeing yourself as a character in the story of a missionary God. This is the main truth we're going to consider this morning. Your missionary story starts, well, before we start describing the details of that missionary story, it starts with a mental frame of reference check, change for most of us, as seeing ourselves as characters in the story, singular story, of a missionary God. This is what I believe frames all of what Stephen does in Acts chapter 7. And we see it not only here, but it's also done in in these other missionary greats throughout the book of Acts. For example, I mentioned Acts chapter 2 a moment earlier, Peter's famous sermon. If you want to flip back just a page or two to Acts chapter 2 verse 29. This is Peter giving a defense, preaching the truth the moment of Pentecost. And he says this, Brothers and sisters, I'm in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see what Peter does. He steps out of his present experience, backtracks, rewinds the tape for us for a minute, and says, you remember David? Well, all of what he was doing, all of what he said, was pointing forward to this present experience that we're now stepping into. We're a part of a much bigger story. Peter anchors his sermon in the life of David, showing that Jesus is the one David was looking forward to. And here, Stephen, in chapter 7, is going to spend his entire defense telling the story of God, telling the missionary story of God. He starts with the story of Abraham. I won't read this entire chapter, but notice in verse 4 of Acts chapter 7, then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Iran, and from there, after his father died, God had him move to this land to which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of the ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Even though he was childless, God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. So he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Those of you that have been around TCC for any length of time, you're like, yep, know those stories, right? This is exactly what we've been considering throughout the series on faith and frailty. 
He's in fact doing exactly what we did. He's skimming the lives of these greats, pointing out that through their faith and their frailty, God remained faithful to his promises. He was faithful to save sinners, and he was doing it through the covenant line of Abraham. He continues this in verses 9 through 16. There he tells the story of Joseph. And this story we'll look at in the third part of our Genesis series this coming fall when we consider the end of the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. But there the themes are very much the same. It's the story of God's incredible care for his people against seemingly insurmountable odds. God remains faithful to his promises to save his people. And then in verse 17 through 43, Stephen points the attention to the great Moses. For example, consider in verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. In a flame of the burning bush, and Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Moses began to tremble, and he did not dare look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. These are are the stories that many of you might have heard before. Many of them have been made into movies. They frame vacation Bible schools throughout our city. These are the classic stories of the Old Testament narrative. They're the main turning points in the long and circuitous road that led to Jesus Christ. Then in the end, in verses 44 through 50, Stephen tells the story of the settling of the land and Solomon's work to build the temple. Friends, that's a lot of verses. That's 30-some verses of history. Just recounting the stories. Now, what's Stephen doing? I mean, clearly our brother isn't bored. I mean, this isn't the time you just kind of say, hey, let me tell you a story. He's on defense for his life. He's not trying to filibuster just to fill the time in hopes that they'll forget about why they're there. That's not going to work either. He's connecting the present moment with a singular story of God's work throughout all of human history. I would suggest... We could consider he's telling the missionary story of those who have gone before. Now, we don't tend to think about the likes of Abraham, Joseph, David, or Moses having missionary stories, but they are. They're the very people that God used to bring Jesus to this world. And isn't this the same thing that we're trying to do through our own missionary stories? Surely we're not on the same side of the first coming of Jesus, but we are on the same side of his second coming. And we here are living as kingdom citizens, little temples of the Holy Spirit bringing God's message and his character to the world through everyday deeds of love, service, mercy, and care until he returns and makes all things new. God is setting people up in the middle of the world as a sign and preview of where he's taking all of human history. That's what he's been doing through the lives of the greats in the past, and that's what he's doing. That's the story that Stephen is stepping into 
in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And then we get to the crescendo of this whole story in verse 51. He's just recounted story after story after story, and then it takes a hard right turn. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you did also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of the angels, and yet you have not kept it. Now, if you're reading this passage and you don't know the rest of the story, you can probably stop there and guess the header that's going to follow. My Bible, the header says, First Christian Martyr, right? I mean, this is not mincing words. This is not cowering from truth. He suggests quite strongly that not only is he stepping into the missionary story of what God's been doing to bring Jesus into the world, but he connects the story to what the opponents are doing now. He says, you're doing the very same thing that's happened throughout. I'm telling the story of the greats that God's used to bring Jesus into the world, and throughout all their stories, you're going to see opponents that were attempting to undermine the truth. It even happened to the Christ. He was proclaiming the truth. He was living out this missionary story the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he faced opponents that even killed the righteous one. And now, hey, guess what? I'm stepping into the story, the missionary story of God, and you all are stepping into the story of the people who are undermining it. You're stiff-necked. You're hard of hearing. He sees all of this experience in light of the grand story that God's been writing that doesn't change. What gives someone the courage to call out people this strongly? What gives someone the courage to make statements like this, seemingly knowing the outcome before it even happens? I would suggest to you that it's fundamentally the truth of what we've established this morning, which is Stephen sees his missionary story as one small piece, one small character in the grand story of a missionary God. Why does this matter? Let me suggest three reasons it matters quickly. One, seeing yourself as a character in the grand story of the missionary God gives your life purpose. It gives you purpose. I then become a part of the way that God has always brought his message of hope and grace to this world. He's working through people, which is exactly what he's always done since the garden. I need somebody to name the animals. Adam, you do it, right? He's always working through people to mediate this world that he has created. And as hard as it is for us to believe, as hard as it is for me to believe most days, in some incredible act of mercy and kindness, God is working through me as well right? He is somehow this little insignificant life that I am living is caught up in something way bigger. There's simply more to what I'm experiencing than moving through my days, celebrating and mourning, weeping and sleeping, 
paying bills and celebrating birthdays. I'm doing something that matters, even if I don't feel like it. Secondly, it gives us hope. My little life is now a part of something so much bigger. So whatever form of suffering I encounter, my obedience is somehow a part of this light and momentary suffering that is a reality in this world. And in fact, somehow in the cosmic story of what God's doing throughout all of human history, a legacy of faithfulness will continue to live on after me, likely in ways that I will never see or understand. That gets me out of bed on Monday mornings. It gives a sense of hope that even though this thing seems really mundane, there's something a lot bigger that I can't see. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, it gives me identity. The most important thing about me is that I am a child of God and I am involved in his mission in the world. Not what people think about me, not the outcome of my experiences, not whether I hit my pillow at night giving myself a thumbs up or thumbs down on how well I think I did that day. But what defines my identity as a follower of Christ is that he has saved me and commissioned me. And nothing that I'm doing in any given day is going to take that away. This frames my identity as a child of God. And then we get to, uh, uh, Stephen steps into this, frames the missionary story for us, and then we get to the, the big end of his story the text I read at the the outset. We know what this big end is for him. It's death. And I fear that as we read these stories, or or maybe I should better say as I read these stories, uh, my my own personal fear is this is where I kind of step out of the story. Like This is so unlikely to happen to me that I don't really need to consider that this is what the greats do. And perhaps there's a sense of truth in that. Few of us are likely to face the outcome that Stephen faces in Acts 7. But this text is given for our growth in Christ-likeness, our commission to mission in the world. So we can't step out of it and say it was just Stephen's experience. And in fact, I would suggest that, that while it may not be you, that dies the death that Stephen faces at the end of this chapter. The best means of stepping into your missionary story is to actually learn to die little deaths each day. That the means of seeing your life as caught up in the missionary story that God's writing in the world is to voluntarily offer yourself as a living sacrifice. I think there's someone much brighter than me that once said that. To not wait for a martyrdom that may or may not await you, but actually willingly offer yourself. Jesus is going to say this in places like taking up your cross and following him. Paul's going to famously say it in statements like he dies daily. Right? We learn to live little deaths in preparation for a big death as a result of our faith that may or may not await us in the form that Stevens takes. So let me give you four points of application. How do you die some little deaths? First, 
I would challenge you to pray for opportunities to live into your story each day. To pray for opportunities to take small steps in writing your own missionary story each Monday. What this does is it heightens our spiritual antenna to the regular opportunities that we often overlook and frankly will easily get swallowed up in simply going to work and making meals and trying to get to our pillow at the end of the day. That we begin the day by praying for opportunities. God, show me what my missionary story looks like today. Secondly, I would encourage you to rehearse the story of a missionary God. Get really familiar at knowing the grand story of God's faithfulness throughout human history. The only reason a human is able to tell this story on the brink of their death is this story framed all of Stephen's existence. Does it yours? Are you awestruck at the grand story of God's faithfulness that brought salvation to bear in a place like Greenville, South Carolina, and to you? That God's working through redemptive history to get the good news of Jesus to you. What this does, rehearsing the story over and over and over again, presses us beyond our nearsightedness and gets our eyes up to what God's doing before us and after us. Thirdly, would you train your mind in the moment to ask What would bring the message and character of God to bear on this relationship or situation? Train your mind in the moment to ask, what would bring the message or character of God to bear on this relationship or situation? Phenomenal question to to frame our interactions, which could be do something, could be refrained from doing something, but learning to ask, what does it look like to bring the gospel of grace, the message, and the demonstration of that to the situations and circumstances that I'm encountering? And then fourthly, and this is true in every aspect of Christian obedience, learn to lean into the ordinary. Learn to lean into the ordinary. No great missionary story is going to be written on any singular Monday. It's going to take the cumulative years to train your mind and your actions to say what's most important this day is that I live like a missionary. And what's most important the next day is that I live like a missionary. And cumulatively over time, that builds some really great life habits. How do most of us who feel woefully inadequate in our missionary stories start to develop that type of track record? We take advantage of the seemingly mundane opportunities God gives us every day. So the next time you're tempted to say, this is too small, that word of encouragement God wants you to bring to a coworker. 
That time where you say, I'll pray for you, buddy, and in your spirit you know, like, no, I should actually, like, pray for them right now. Like, don't write that off as being something too small. Step into it, because what it's going to do, it may, it may be a huge blessing in that moment, but perhaps more importantly, it's going to start to train you to lean into the promptings of the Spirit. I've seen that woman out in the yard three or four times. I really ought to walk over and just introduce myself. Do it for the benefit of connecting with that person, but more importantly, for the benefit of learning to stop whatever you're doing in the moment and sense the leaning of the Spirit to step into something new. So learn to lean into the ordinary. And we get this classic scene to end. Heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged, they gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a beautiful picture. He said, look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's no guess as to what Luke wants to emphasize here, right? Standing at the right hand. Onlooker watching a sports game that's so caught up in this scene that even the edge of the seat isn't enough. Stand up and pace in front of the TV. What's going to happen? They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a, of a young man named Saul. Hint of foreshadowing here. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. The allusion to Jesus' death is clearly not lost on any of us. The one who says, into your hands I commend my spirit, now sees that scene echoed in this first Christian martyr. And the one who from a cross could say to those who crucified him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing now sees this scene replicated in this one who gives a glorious defense and asks for forgiveness. We're reminded here in this not-so-subtle illusion that Jesus is the frame, he's the point, he's what gives coherence to the entirety of every missionary story that will ever be written. His life, death, burial, and resurrection frames the life experience of Stephen, the life of these greats in the Old Testament who pointed forward to Christ, and the lives of average, ordinary men and women like you and I, who will live a certain number of days under the sun and give our lives to point forward to this coming one. And it's why this morning we celebrate communion. As believers, we take the elements of the Lord's Supper as an act of reminding ourselves that Jesus gives coherence to our life story. Without his sacrificial substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, our lives are pointless and purposeless. But because he, in a much greater way than Stephen does in this text, willingly laid down his life to pay the price that our sins deserved, we are commissioned to respond to that grace gift and commissioned to live as missionary agents in the world 
that he's called us. This morning, we're going to take the elements, and as we do, I want you to reflect on our summer question. What, what's your missionary story? Are you pleased with the way you're writing it right now? Is it worthy of the great missionary Jesus who paid the price for your sins? And if not, would our acts of repentance and cleansing as we as believers take this meal be confession of our own trivial pursuits of selfish indulgence and a desire, a commitment once again to double down our efforts to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus until the day he returns.